From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to The Legal Lounge. I'm Amanda and along with the lawyers and experts here at Lanyon Bowdler, I'll be bringing you a series of podcasts that cover many aspects of law in England and Wales. It's our aim to show you that the law isn't scary and nor are our lawyers. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by getting in touch through the website lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Following on from their podcast about ADR and family law, in this episode Gemma Hughes and Caroline York talk about the court financial process, in particular FDR hearings, which stands for Financial Dispute Resolution. Hello again, I'm Gemma. Hi, and I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the process in going to court if the matter cannot be agreed between yourself and your spouse. Our previous podcast, we spoke about the process of Alternative Dispute Resolution, otherwise known as ADR. But today we're talking about the process that if you can't reach a decision with your spouse, that you put the decision making into the hands of the court. Caroline, so before you issue an application to the court, you still do have to attend mediation. Yes, that's correct. Not necessarily with the spouse, although you can still go into that part of the process at any stage within the court process, you can step sideways and say that you'd like to have another go at mediation. But you do need to have attended an intake session uh, on your own uh, with a mediator to assess if the mediation is suitable for you. There are some exemptions from mediation, um, for example, if there is domestic abuse, and that's something that the mediator will screen for. Um, And there are also other uh, exemptions, such as both of you living a certain distance from uh, a common mediator. There's quite an extensive list of exemptions, um, and I can't reel them all off right now. But in the vast majority of cases, I would suggest that you assume, unless told otherwise, that you might need to have an intake session. Okay. One person then uh, makes the decision that mediation is not going to be successful. So they make an application to the court, and they do that in what's known as a, a Form A, and that gets sent off to the court. Court, the court will process that form and then you will get notification of the first court appointment and also a list of uh, documents that you need to file in advance of that hearing. One of the documents you've got to file is, is a Form E. What, what does that consist of? Well, a Form E is um, a, a financial statement. Um, it takes the form of um, uh, about 26 pages. I think it's the longest form, isn't it? It in is. That, in all it of is. And it can appear quite daunting, but I'll come on to in a second as to why you don't necessarily need to be alarmed by it. So the Form E is essentially comprised of lots of boxes that starts with asking your name and your date of birth, date of the marriage, uh, children, where you live, so on and so forth, and then gets into the more of the nitty gritty about your property ownership, your bank accounts, any debts you have, your pension valuations, your income from self-employment or employment. So the first three parts of the form are very factual, I would say. They're very figures-based. And then the last part of the form uh, is where you have an opportunity to be a little bit more narrative and to actually set out in words what you feel your priorities are. You can talk about your contributions you've made to the marriage, financially or practically. You can talk about how your needs might change in the future. And really tell a little bit more of the story than the figures might, might on the face of it, tell. The form is set up to give the court all of the information it needs to be able to follow the law 
when deciding how to divide up the assets. So for anyone having trouble sleeping, if you want to look <laughs> up the law, it's um, Section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act. And that's a relatively short list of the factors that the court needs to be mindful of when it's deciding uh, or helping you decide how to uh, how to divide up the assets. And if you look at the form, every single box in that form can somehow be related back to one of the sentences in section 25. So no information is wasted. Nothing you is. might think, why Why do the court need to know exactly. why they're asking me what my standard of living was during the marriage? But at the end point, it will be relevant. Absolutely, absolutely spot on. And uh, I think the other point I like to make to people, it, when they do look in horror at the form E and, and how long it, it appears, is that this form has to be used by anybody whether you are um, in very modest or rented accommodation with um, a few bank accounts and a pension, or you are a multimillionaire. Um, I always like to tell people that Paul McCartney would have had to complete uh, for me when he got divorced and any other high-profile divorce taking place in this country. So it has to be user-friendly for every single kind of case. And in the vast majority of situations, not every page of the form will need to be completed. And the solicitor can help guide you through what's relevant to you. Yes, it's one of those, it it looks very daunting. Yes. But really, you're just declaring what you have. Yes. And majority of people, it it won't be relevant. You can take pleasure in putting a big line through some pages. (laughs) But then there are crucial things. And it's it's obviously time needs to be taken because this is like the foundation Mm. for what your case is in in, in proceeding through to the court where you need to get everything out there yes so you know it, it's good to set aside some time that in some you know appreciate busy lives but it is an important document definitely and the other important thing to emphasize at this point is that the form has to be accompanied by documents proving what you're saying in there so for example 12 months bank statements um, your most recent valuation of your pension uh, three months pay slips your most recent p60 and in fact you're encouraged not to attach anything to it that isn't specifically required i have had cases where people seem to have just trawled through every single document in their study or back bedroom for the last seven years and attached it randomly um, which doesn't actually help it's got to be definitely directed Uh, and and have some bearing and relevance. Yes. If you just collate um, the documentation, which again, I always set out in a list form to my clients at the start of the case. If you give me the documentation, I can quite often do, I would say, two thirds of the work just from that documentation and then have a short meeting with you to to fill in the gaps and fill in the narrative bits so we can funnel and channel the process. Once somebody has assembled and completed their form, they've got all their documents attached to it and they're happy with it. They sign it to say this is sort of true and accurate sort of uh, my information. You then get in contact with the other side. Now, they may be represented or in person. And it's a form of exchange of of the documents at the same time. It's dealt with at the same time and it can be done electronically uh, by most firms as well these days. You are actually told the date by the court on which you, the latest that you must exchange this document and file it at court. And we have had some cases where we've actually managed to do so early, uh, which is quite nice because it gives you a little bit of breathing space to sort of regroup, gather your thoughts and prepare for the hearing. So you would arrange with the other side when you're going to exchange and file this form, preferably by the date set out by the court. So that's worst case scenario that has to be. Yes, sometimes you're a little bit late, um, and but it's best to try and avoid being. And then once you've exchanged those documents, you will then have an opportunity of going through your spouse's form and then you raise questionnaire 
uh, about if there's anything missing in that information or anything inaccurate or anything you want clarifying then that document is something that gets filed prior to the first appointment. Yes, when you get the initial form from the court telling you the date on which you need to file your form E, it will always it will also then um, set out the date by which you need to file the questions arising out of the form E. So again, once I've had a form E, what I tend to do, and everybody's got their own way of doing it, what I tend to do is go through the form myself, pick up anything that um, is, is apparent to me, but I'm also aware that my client is married to this person, not me. So there might be subtle little details that they would pick up from seeing it. But rather than giving my client the for me and saying, there you go, raise the questions, I would rather tell them what I found and then ask them to, again, it's fill in It's a joint effort. Exactly. You're experiencing going, well, that doesn't seem right. But then they've got their on-the-ground experience in knowing whether that is unusual activity for that spouse. Yes, so it's a joint process. And again, the questionnaires are exchanged and filed. On a specific date. When you arrive at the, the first hearing, the court then have quite a lot of documents and information already at that point then in order to, to kind of know how the case is set out. You know, sort of it's the process then of timetabling then at that first appointment in moving the matter forward, but also wanting to make directions as to what further information we may require to get. I quite often have to reassure people that when they get the questionnaire, they're not expected to answer it before the hearing, before the first hearing. Sometimes people say, well, actually, it's all quite straightforward and I can answer it and I'm happy to go to court with that information to hand. And if you can, great, but there's absolutely no obligation to do so. So at that first hearing, we would generally agree between the the, the two representatives when those questions are going to be answered by depending on how much information they need and how long it might take generally we try and aim for two or three weeks in standard cases occasionally there are discussions in front of the judge about um, whether certain questions need to be answered if you feel that a question is just nitpicking and hair splitting or not relevant but ultimately if you can't agree uh, what questions need to be answered it's always the final decision of the judge to direct what needs to be answered and when it needs to be done by. So although the courts do encourage people to try and agree these things, it's important to remember that the judge does have the final say. At that hearing, you would hopefully try and agree or get the judge to decide what you need to answer, when you need to answer it by, and also whether there's a need for any further information, such as an independent valuation of property. If the two forms E one filed by wife, one filed by husband, each give a, a, a wildly different valuation for a property, for example. Uh, and you can't agree a figure that you, everyone can use for negotiation purposes. Then it would generally be the case that you would get an independent expert to value the property. And you would agree at that first hearing who that expert should be or when you're going to agree that by and when you're going to uh, the instructions to the expert so everything is closely timetabled uh, and the same with pensions uh, you might feel that you need information about pension sharing so you can agree to instruct a pensions expert to give that advice and again the order the judge makes that day will set out when you need to agree the identity of the expert by uh, when you need to file the letter and what sort of time frame it's likely to be before you get a response from those experts. The next step is to get that information, whether that be the property valuation and the pension sharing report, which you've uh, identified already. 
and it will be listed for a, a what's called a financial dispute resolution appointment. Now, before we get on to what process that is, again, there's some very standard documents that need to be filed just before that hearing. Uh, they are the property particulars and then also the mortgage raising capacities. Can you just explain what the purpose of having those documents are for? The property particulars are important for both parties because usually in a case where there is one marital property, you've got to, uh, or the court has ultimately got to decide how best to split that up so as to enable both parties to go into new homes of their own, if, if that's at all possible. So using your agreed valuation of the marital home or the single independent valuation as your springboard, um, you will then need to combine the valuation information with details of what each person can borrow so as to be able to top up any equity they get from the matrimonial home, if that makes sense, um, and, give it, and, and then to, to see if what they can raise together with what they can get out of the marital home is enough to actually house them, um, which is why they then need to also produce details of suitable properties for themselves. There's a very close interplay between all these documents. One doesn't stand alone. Uh, you, you, the valuation uh, of the current property is your starting point. And then in order to make best use of that, you need to know what you're going to do with it and how you're going to make use of that money and what other resources you can draw upon to um, to actually realise that aim of turning one home into two. And, and then the court can see practicalities of if you need a three-bedroom property and you need to be in this locality for children going to school or, or, or perhaps for your job that this is the going rate to get a three-bedroom property yes. in that area mm. and you can also produce property particulars for the other party as well you know somebody could say well I could only get a three-bedroom property and it's worth 500,000 the other person could then produce property particulars and say well actually I can get a two-bedroom property for 200,000 so it just gives the court some awareness as to how much properties are if if they are able to reaccommodate themselves. Yes and as, a, as an aside I tend as well to ask for not only the details of their mortgage capacity but the information they've given in support of that because again it's possible for anybody to ask a very one-sided question of a mortgage advisor um, to ask them to inflate or deflate their uh, mortgage capacity but again if you can see the information that they've given to the advisor in support of that application then you can either reassure yourself that it is accurate or you can challenge it and I think because it's so important to try and go into this, this financial dispute resolution hearing with all of your all of your ducks in a row essentially and any issues or challenges that you want to make ironed out before then um, it's important to have identified any of those potential points of dispute or conflict before you go into this hearing because it's such an important hearing. Before the, the FDR hearing, you'll also both have to update your financial disclosure because obviously it's probably, you know, if you've had a pension sharing report, it could be a bit six, nine months since you last did your form E and information can go out of date. So you constantly have a duty to the court to uh, produce uh, evidence of what your financial circumstances are. So at the FDR hearing, the court should have all of the information that it requires in order to make a decision. And the court hearing is usually about an, an hour, but it can obviously, it's, it, I always say to my clients, it's going to last a whole day because this hearing is about negotiation and trying to reach a settlement before it goes to a final hearing. So can you just 
briefly provide an overview as to what somebody may expect if they had an FDR on, on a certain day? Generally, I find they are listed um, first thing in the day, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will see the judge at that point in the day. Nevertheless, turn up early if you can. And again, the court might have certain restrictions on the numbers of people in the building, so on and so forth. And there are always limited um, waiting areas. But um, work together with your solicitor and any represent any barrister or other representative you have to have a plan for when you're all going to meet. And there will usually be the opportunity for you to have discussions with your legal team at court just to really regroup, get an idea of where you're going today. And your representative will then try to speak with the representative for your spouse. Again, just to try and get a feel for what their position is. That usually then feeds into attempts to try and get a sense for whether there's any prospect of of agreeing and settling matters today. And um, in reality, um, I do find that the courts um, can be quite fluid. And if there is a prospect um, of people settling, if negotiations are going really well and are looking busy between the parties, then the court will try and accommodate that and bring other cases on before your listed time so as to not try and break the continuity and break the fluidity. Um, But of course, they do have to be mindful of all the court users. But because the emphasis is on settlement, um, use that opportunity, do engage in discussions. It can be frustrating. It can sometimes feel like a pressure cooker. And there's nothing like just sending somebody to go and get a coffee for five minutes just to recalibrate everybody and breathe some new life into the negotiations. But ultimately, at some point, the judge will want to hear you. And that's your opportunity to go in front of the judge where your representative and the other side's representative will set out where you are in your negotiations if you've managed to get anywhere with them what your current positions are. They will probably put forward some legal arguments in in support of your position on either side. And it's open to the judge then to give an indication of what he or she feels would be a reasonable outcome if they were in a position to make a final decision that day. The court can't impose a final decision at the FDR hearing, but they can give what's called judicial guidance or judicial indication. And again, I think if you've reached a sticking point in your negotiations, just hearing from the judge with all of their experience what he or she would probably say if they could make a decision for you can again just reignite the discussions and help break any sticking points. Yeah, I think it's nice to have that confirmation that either you are on the right tracks and that you you know you should stick with what you've put forward or alternatively whether there is any room for maneuverability and concessions because no one is going to walk out of a divorce and go yep I won I lost it's about compromise and nobody is ever going to think yes that was a good result for me it's something that you can just live with and it's very hard to adapt to that because you're going from two uh, incomes coming in generally into a household and or you're splitting up one house and trying to make two so there's compromises that have got to be made and the court will always highlight and say you know this is in your interest to settle as early as possible and they will always reinforce that to you know the parties and say you know try and have some ownership of the outcome basically and don't have something imposed on you you know you can be the the, the author of what you want that you can live with. 
Yes, absolutely. And not only uh, is there an opportunity to come out of the hearing with a sense that although it might not have been your ideal settlement, it's something that you can live with. A lot of people say they couldn't put a price afterwards on the feeling of walking out of court and knowing that they never have to to deal with that again. And then, of course, there is the issue of the costs of fighting it further. To go further from an FDR hearing through to a final hearing uh, can involve some very significant costs. And, of course, the experience um, of giving evidence at a final hearing, which isn't everybody's ideal day out. So that all has to be factored in. Um, you know, the, the, What price would you put on being able to walk away from this yeah. and also not have spent a lot of the marital assets simply paying legal fees. Because some people just have to make a calculation and saying, if we're arguing over £20,000, it could cost us both, you know, £10,000 each to go to that point. How about we have six months of our lives back and not have to have the court and we just split the difference? So, you know, everybody has to be realistic. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and just sensible. But it's what people want to do. People might say, well, actually, no, you know, I want to go through that process up until a final hearing. Or as you say, because something can't be imposed, you could be in full agreement with what the judges indicated but your other spouse thinks, actually, you know, I, I'm not agreeing to that. So I'm, you know, I'm going to take that to a, to a final hearing. So it's hoped. And I would say in the majority of cases are uh, agreed at an FDR. I, I think, yes, at an FDR or, um, and I think it's important going back to what you've just said, it's important to emphasise that if you don't reach agreement at the FDR, that doesn't stop you negotiating thereafter. And, I and think all throughout this. Exactly. You know, from the very start that someone's issued there for me, you can always put forward offers. Nothing is stopping you from coming out of the court process, essentially. I do find sometimes that because of the environment uh, of being in court, some people have heard and genuinely listened to what the judge has said that day, but I just need a little bit of time to process it uh, and to walk away from the court building, think about it overnight, maybe talk to family members yeah. or, or friends. Um, and also do the sums. Do you, the sums, It exactly. might be they need to go to a mortgage advisor and see whether or not they can afford what they want to on what is being offered. Absolutely. I have seen many situations where a spouse who walks out of court absolutely turned off by the indication the judge has given is actually mulling it over and just doesn't want to give too much away and within a week or so will instruct their solicitors to come back with an offer to settle that isn't too significantly different from what the judge has said. If an agreement can't be reached and then the matter is does have to get listed for for a final hearing I would say a final hearing is probably a minimum of a day in court depending on the complexities it could be you know up to a week or even longer. Um, so it's a lot of court time, which then equals a lot of additional costs. Both parties have to file statements prior to that final hearing. That's sort of their final attempt to set out what, what their case is and sort of in providing a narrative statement as to what their views are and what they're asking for and why, essentially. Yes, it's their chance to tell their story in words rather than figures. Uh, the for me gives you the figures as do the, the questionnaires and the replies. And this is their story. And usually you relate it back to that section 25 of the Matrimonial Causes Act that I mentioned earlier. And you make sure in that statement that you've dealt with every single one of those factors because that's all the judge can, um, can base his or her decision upon. Mm. So again, you need to be very careful in a, in a statement that you have covered everything but not covered too much and just, and, because that will just risk losing the patience of, of the court and be yeah. counterproductive. 
the matter then is listed for a final hearing and that essentially is where it's out of the party's hands the judge will just say right this is what is happening you know and that's it there's no room for any further negotiation going well actually i quite like something different it's just that is what is happening although um i will say that i have seen settlements negotiated at the door of the court as you're about to go in and have that have that fully contested hearing, uh, which really emphasises the point we made earlier that there is never, uh, until you're actually in front of the judge arguing uh, and giving evidence at the final hearing, it is never too late to negotiate. Just as a sort of a final uh, topic, I just wanted to touch upon the issue of costs. Mm. Now, each of the hearings which we've uh, described, you have to um, file what's called a Form H, which is setting out to the court what your costs have incurred at each stage. And also recently, you now have to put what your costs are going to be at the next stage as well in anticipation. Mm. And it's something that we have to discuss with our clients to ensure that they're aware of what they have incurred and what they will incur if they don't settle at this stage. Do you find that the court are now looking at that if somebody hasn't behaved in a way that is trying to reach a settlement throughout of this, that actually you could risk having a cost order made against you if you haven't sort of gone down a a mediation road or you haven't looked at trying to settle at any point? I haven't had personal experience of that, um, simply because most of my cases um, don't tend to reach the point of a final hearing. But I've certainly heard on the grapevine from barristers and courses I've been on that there seems to be a full circle. When I started out some 20 years ago, however long it was, <laughs> I'm trying not to think how long it was. Uh, when I started out, the, the rule was very much, uh, or the, the rule of thumb was very much that um, if you weren't seen to have been negotiating between the FDR Uh, and the final hearing, then you were very much at risk of um, facing a costs order, um, especially if you didn't beat an offer that the other side had made. Mm. So you you could face um, a situation where you paid the other side's costs from the date of the the offer that they made and date of the final hearing. That then started to fade out and there were new regimes imposed which seemed to take away this partisan idea or this sense of winning and losing and saying we just want everybody to come out with a, a conclusion and a solution to their situation and we don't want to be threatening people with um, costs penalties unless their behaviour has been so um, reprehensible that it really would be wrong not to punish them for it. I think it was well intentioned but perhaps people lost sight of what they were trying to achieve and perhaps the courts are seeing that there needs to be a little bit of a carrot dangled in front of people to focus the mind. Um, And I'm certainly hearing anecdotally that the courts are are moving not full circle back to the position there it was 20 years ago, but are certainly um, reminding people through the use of these forms H and through the comments that the judges are making that um, although it's been the fashion not to make costs orders, it is still open to the judge to do so. And again, we need to remember that no matter what we try and agree um, and come up with between ourselves, the judge is the final arbiter. And if a judge feels, for whatever reason, that sufficient efforts haven't been made or there is just something about a specific case that justifies a person being quote-unquote punished by a cost penalty then that is within the gift of the court to make that order Mm. and I'm just getting a sense that perhaps that is being used as a threat Mm. a little bit more than it might have been five ten years ago. It's in both parties interest isn't it to to always negotiate it's nice for that person who's trying to reach a settlement to know that there are repercussions 
for the other party if they have no desire either for not filing documents and causing you know, legal extra legal costs for, for themselves yes. or um, uh, not turning up for hearings or something like that. But yes. as you say, the court is the final uh, decision on that, but it, it's good to have it as a, as a threat. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the court will be open-minded about um, a person's reasons for doing or not doing something. Um, I don't think it's completely formulaic, but having the the risk and the threat there um, may actually prove to be helpful in the way people conduct proceedings moving forward. That sort of brings me back, actually, to... um, the point that I always try and emphasise to people before they even start these proceedings, um, because you constantly have to emphasise trying to keep hostility out of the case, which can be very, very difficult when everybody is buried in paperwork and is seeing the inside of court buildings. But going back to the, the beginning of the process where you go to mediation because you feel that you'll need to bring it to court, um, I have said to people a lot in the past, Issuing a financial application does not have to be construed as a hostile act. Sometimes it's a really good way of just bringing everybody on track. I've had cases where I know that both parties want to settle. They don't want to um, spend a lot of time or money um, or emotional energy on it. But they each have their own very specific um, idea of how long that should take or how they want to do it. And putting it in the hands of the court and saying to the court, can you give us a timetable? by which we need to do certain things, can just focus everybody's mind. And it does mean then that one party doesn't construe it as the other party uh, laying down the law um, or controlling things. This is the court dealing with this. And it becomes actually much more neutral process. Exactly, where it's out of their hands. But, it, you know, it's one of those where weeks drift by and you, you, and I think if everybody's works to the same deadline, uh, then it just helps keep everything on track because everybody wants to move on, on with their lives, essentially. Absolutely. So, And there are cases where going to court can actually prove cheaper because if you are in a situation where, with the best will in the world, you've got one very laid-back lackadaisical party and another party who really, really wants to get things sorted, even the correspondence just chasing people up can start to accumulate costs um, that could actually be better spent on a task within the court process, actually getting you to a particular point. So um, it it really does not need to be construed as, as a threat or a hostile step. Thanks to Gemma and Caroline for lending their expertise, yet more proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. And if you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialists for an upcoming episode, please let us know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show and find any of the conversations interesting or helpful, please remember to use your podcast app to follow The Legal Lounge so that you never miss an episode. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.